welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. ...against Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Speaking on Fox News, House Freedom Caucus member Mark Meadows explained the actions. For us, it's all about transparency so the American people... Uh, can judge for themselves. And so, you know, they may be able to ignore Congress, but they can't ignore the American people. Joining us is Jeff Kramer, a former federal prosecutor and managing director at the Berkeley Research Group. Jeff, a lot of drama, but not much evidence of any traction. Paul Ryan says he's not supporting it. And Republican Senator Lindsey Graham said it's more likely Rosenstein will end up in the NBA playing basketball than being impeached. So why file articles of impeachment? Uh, yeah, that's a, a good line in the basketball. It's basically for it is for drama, uh, and it got a news cycle for a day, and that was it. You know, it allows some people to pop off and express their dissatisfaction um, with the deputy attorney general. Um, but it's it was absurd to think it was going to go anywhere. I'm sure they thought so as well. So, what do you think is Rosenstein's future here? Does he does he stay? Does he eventually leave? What do you think? So, you know, the, uh, Rosenstein is a career prosecutor, so he certainly has, you know, DOJ uh, uh, running through his blood. I don't think he's going to leave anytime soon, certainly not before the Mueller investigation is done. I mean, he's, he knows that if he were to leave, someone could be appointed who would then stop it in his track. So I think he has a sense of duty that he needs to stick it out. He's going to be a punching bag, and he knows that. Uh, but he's got to wait, I think, until the Mueller investigation, not necessarily all the trials, but certainly the crux of the investigation is done. You just spoke about the Mueller investigation. Let's talk about that a little bit. There was a New York Times article this morning that talked about how Mueller's investigators are really seriously looking at some of the president's tweets. Tell us about how those tweets might play a part in the investigation. Yeah, I mean, that's been bantied around, not by Mueller, but just by, you know, uh, various individuals that that could prove uh, to be fodder. And not surprisingly, Mueller is looking at it. It's, it gives you a glimpse into what the person, and, you know, if this was an average individual, you'd do the same thing, what is he or she said, that could add some color to what they were thinking. Because that's what obstruction comes down to, is their intent. And you look at someone's intent, you look at what their actions are. And part of uh, this president's actions uh, are his tweets, trying to influence, if not the investigation, uh, then public perception. But he was certainly trying to influence, as best he could, uh, the investigation. You could argue that that is obstruction, not two problems. One, it's not great evidence, but it's, it's a part of the mosaic, if you will. Two, which is a bigger problem, is even if he did commit obstruction, even if you could prove it, uh, Mueller has been clear that he's going to abide by DOJ policy. It's not the law, it's policy that a sitting president cannot be indicted. So I think at best you're going to get an argument laid out uh, in a report to Congress. What about the collusion piece of it, though? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. president says he... no collusion. You know. <laughs> Over and over and over again. And and so far, you know, there are no leaks that suggest that uh, that's where Mueller, that Mueller's got anything on that. 
true. Uh, but this uh, investigation, and we've seen it, uh, surprised us in the sense that uh, we just wake up and there's an indictment. I mean, I dare say that 99.9% of the population has never heard Bob Mueller talk. They don't even know what his voice sounds like. And that's appropriate because he's just putting his head down and doing his work. He's not press release. There's no news conferences, etc. So he's certainly looking at the collusion. That's a hard argument to make. Um, we certainly see some individuals in the Trump orbit, and some of them have been indicted, who were interacting uh, with Russian government officials and perhaps agents of the Russian government. We saw a recent indictment just now. Um, but proving that Trump or someone very close to him colluded, and you know, let's call it a conspiracy because collusion itself is it's not uh, a crime. Um, it's, it's a conspiracy to take uh, anything of aid from a foreign government. That's the crime. It's going to be hard to tag that to the White House itself. So now, I don't know if we'll see Mueller even observing at the Manafort trial, but that's supposed to start next week. How important is a conviction of Manafort to the special counsel's investigation as a whole? I think it's very important. It's the first first volley. Uh, you want to win that trial because as you move forward in the investigation, part of this, and it's true with any prosecutorial office when you're bringing people in, is you're trying to flip them. You're trying to turn them. Well, how you flip them, how you turn them is the fear, the specter, uh, that if they get indicted and tried, they're going to jail. And that specter becomes uh, more prominent if you've already got a scalp, if you were. Um, and this one is, I don't want to say it's a, you know, it, it's an easy case because all cases are difficult once you get to trial. But it's a pretty solid case with documents, money uh, trail, no uh, taxes paid. And you've got several witnesses who are going to give some color to the trial itself, certainly Mr. Gates. It's not a long trial. You know, this thing may take three weeks. I doubt we'll see Mr. Manafort trial or, excuse me, testify. And I think at the end of this trial, there'll be a conviction. Uh, and that's an important one for the special prosecutor to get. Well, they, yeah, it's going to be a little bit of a picture of lifestyles of the rich and famous, 500 exhibits, <laughs> including. Including, including pictures of his palatial houses and expensive clothes. Now, the judge is trying to lay down all kinds of ground rules so that the jury won't be exposed to the politics of the case. Is it possible to shield jurors from that? You know, it's it's hard. I mean, you're, they're not going to be sequestered, so they're going to go home. They're going to be told not to read anything uh, about, uh, you know, politics or this trial. Certainly, that basically leaves the sports section available to the <laughs> potential jurors. Uh, you can't turn on the TV. That's too risky. But like I say, this is not a four-month trial, so they just need to keep their heads down for, for a few weeks. Uh, you know, the Virginia district is known to pick a quick jury. This is going to be a little trickier because given where it's located, either they or someone close to them probably works or f worked in the past tense for the government. And chances are, like everyone else in this country, they have pretty solid views, uh, politically speaking. Uh, so it may be a little tricky to pick a jury. But once they do, in my experience, uh, jurors are pretty good about listening to those kind of instructions. The trick here is to make sure you get a fair jury and not someone who wants to get on this panel uh, just to get their 15 minutes of faith and, and maybe prove a point. Just about uh, 30 seconds here. What do you think Manafort's defense is going to be? Just trying to knock holes in the prosecution's case? It's a hard defense. It really is. And that's what it comes down to. You're looking for one juror uh, just to hang this thing up. And, you know, Gates has some baggage on him, as any flipper does, but you can't cross-examine a document. It is what it is. He either paid the taxes or he didn't. He either set up the shell companies or he didn't. Uh, it's a very hard defense. 
to to muster, and you're just going to throw everything against the wall and maybe get lucky. <laughs> Always great to have you on, Jeff. That's Jeff Kramer. He's the managing director of the Berkeley Research Group. America, lawyers, interpreters, and other professionals are volunteering some of their free time to help an organization called Lawyers for Good Government, which its founder, executive director, and only employee, Tracy Fight Love, says is a progressive, nonpartisan organization. I think the reason we're seeing the wave of activity that we're seeing now and the reason so many people joined Lawyers for Good Government and the reason so many people are participating in these other movements is because they believe, as I do, in the idea of America, in the dream of America, in what we can accomplish when we stand up for those ideals together. Joining us is Nick Lieber, a reporter for Bloomberg News, who's written about this group. Nick, it's not unusual for lawyers to do pro bono work, but this kind of a setup and network is different from the usual pro bono work. Explain how it works. Sure. So there are 1.34 million lawyers in the U.S., and many of them work for themselves or work for small firms that don't have pro bono counsels, as you know. And uh, this group is a way for those lawyers who don't have access to pro bono counsels to volunteer and to find opportunities where they feel like they can do some good. So it's a a group that helps um, train these lawyers and helps place them in volunteer opportunities. And that can be anything from um, environmental protection to preventing voter suppression to helping immigrants seek asylum. Are there any volunteer lawyers for Trump? Um, there, there are probably volunteer lawyers for Trump. The causes that this group, Lawyers for Good Government, does, um, I would doubt there are too many lawyers within it who support um, many of Trump's policies that have to do with immigration or environmental protection or voter suppression. Nick, I was noticing in in your article that a lot of the lawyers who are volunteering don't have experience in these practice areas. So what do they do to train them? So the the organization itself, Lawyers for Good Government, will do some training. And the organizations in which they volunteer, so say a a legal services group um, on the border, will, will train them as well. So there, there are different opportunities to get trained depending on what you elect to volunteer and do. And, it, you know, and of course, it's competitive. There are a lot of people who want to volunteer. And um, the, in the detention centers, there is limited space, limited, limited visiting space where you can meet with clients. Um, so you, you sort of um, have to have to find time, space, training, and then be able to do it. Nick, any sense of how much time some of these lawyers are spending away from their day jobs? I think it's generally about a week if you're if you're on the ground in a in a detention center. Um, that's generally how it works. But then people are also. Um, during the the first iteration of the of the Muslim ban, the travel ban, uh, people were spending weeks away from their offices, 
Um, and I think it depends. I think there, there are also people volunteering um, remotely and helping prepare briefs. And that could mean you spend, you know, six hours at night after, after you finish your work at your practice or four hours at night after you finish your practice. Um, I think it, I think it varies, but generally it's about a week if you go to, to volunteer at a legal services group, um, and you're, and you're in a detention center. So I thought you mentioned that they, they volunteer remotely, which I thought was really interesting, but the coordination it must take to get all these disparate elements together and even to get translators involved. So tell us about how she's managing all this. Well, I think I think you know, right right when she she started the group, um, there was an incredible outpouring of people who wanted to be involved, and I think what she's been spending a lot of time doing is is exactly that: is figuring out, okay, let's make sure we have an interpreter who can be on the ground at Boston Air at, at Logan. Let's make sure we have someone who has spent a decade doing immigration law, who can go to Texas. It's figuring out who has certain skills and who can get from point A to point B at a certain time. And a lot of that is people volunteering their time to create spreadsheets that they then use to say, okay, I'm available. This, this person is available at this time. They have these skills and they can do this and they're willing to come on these dates. And then, and then the, the sort of magic of, of then making, coordinating all that and making it happen. But it's, you know, it's, it's hard work. Only less than a minute here, Nick, but what other professionals besides lawyers and translators do, does she have? I think that they're also looking for psychiatrists who can help do evaluations of parents and children that they can use in in their asylum requests, who can talk about the stress and um, and more hardcore um, realities that asylum seekers have faced, and can document that um, in reports. Um, interpreters, yes, um, and people who are willing, I think, to give rides to asylum seekers when they're going, say, leaving a detention center and then trying to reconnect. You've got to end it there, Nick. It sounds really comprehensive, and as was your story. Thanks so much. That's Nick Lieber, a reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.